Welcome to the Maris Review. I am delighted to be sitting here with Susan Choi. Um, Her first novel, The Foreign Student, won the Asian American Literary Award for Fiction. Her second novel, American Woman, was a finalist for the 2004 Pulitzer Prize. Her third novel, A Person of Interest, was a finalist for the 2009 Penn Faulkner Award. Her fourth novel, My Education, received a 2014 Lammy. Her fifth novel, Trust Exercise, won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2019. Congratulations. I mean, I'm I'm elated to have won the National Book Award. Is the is the main way that I feel. I think the other way that I feel is um, a slight intensification of the way I already felt about what what to do what to do next. The question of what to do next has been weighing on me a little. Now it, now <laughs> it's now it's weighing on me a little more. So um, it's funny because. The way I wrote Trust Exercise was so unselfconscious. Right. And it was it was it was wonderful in that sense. I didn't imagine ever showing it to anyone and in fact really didn't imagine it as a book for a long time. It was just I always tell my students like try to write every day. The more you write, the better your writing is and right. you know don't be so product oriented as to always think like, "Oh, you know, I've got to be working on something that I can show people. Just write." Mm-hmm. And I I, I want to say a lot of trust exercise was kind of written in that spirit of, yeah, for me, just write, you know, just get some writing done because your real book is going so poorly. It's hard to repeat that trick, I think, sure. you know, and so now I'm, it's it's interesting. I keep trying to figure out how to reapproach that other book in a less hung up, stressed out way. I opened this file on my on my desktop <laughs> recently called, you know, new writing on that same old thing or something like that, where I was just trying to like return to the stuff that had interested me about that project without returning to the existing material. Because once you return to the existing material, there's like editing and trimming and keeping and, and throwing away. And I just wanted to see if I could remember what, what it was about the story that was compelling. Um, And it's hard a year ago that you wrote trust exercise and you, you put it away for a while and so you had different a different perspective every time you came back to it yeah i was always putting it away i mean i didn't put it away <laughs> once i because i was never quote unquote working on it it was something that i would right. um and i have a lot of files like that actually and uh and of course part of part of me now wants to go dig into them and go, is there anything worth looking at here? But, you know, I, I, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of different periods of working on it. And because I didn't feel any pressure to finish it or even any pressure to consider it a thing, I would open it up when I felt like it, which turned out to be at, at times that were like widely separated. Sure. You know, one time I remember was four years ago and another time that I remember pretty clearly was three years ago. And and, and in between <laughs> opening it up, there would be months and months and months where I where I didn't. And so now that you've been talking about it for almost a year, have you have you learned to talk about it in a different way? Because I feel like when I spoke to you, I was terrified to um, mention anything that would spoil <laughs> the book. And it's it's a hard book to talk about. Yeah, I think it's become easier to talk about in part because there's there's um you know, the book's been out since April, so Right. Uh I feel less of a Oh, I I don't know, just a lot of a lot of that 
a lot of that nervousness has dissipated. Um, I think that I've heard a lot of people talk about the book to me in right. ways that have been so smart and um, thrilling to me. You know, like there's nothing better than hearing other people who've read your work talk about it in a way that's exciting to you. Yeah. You know, and sometimes people will say something about the book that, that'll make me go, oh, wow, that's so cool. Oh, you're talking about my work, which is which is really <laughs> it's it's really thrilling and um, gratifying and also helpful um, because I end up seeing the work more clearly myself. So yeah, I I think that others have given me easier ways to just speak about the work in summary. I love it. And let's talk about the first section, though. Okay, that's- <laughs> <laughs> let's go back there again. Let's go back there again. <laughs> Because I was even telling I, – I was telling you at the time that there were clues that what I was reading was not a hyper-realistic story. Mm-hmm. And and you said to think of Romeo and Juliet and how teenagers have a heightened sense of everything that's going on. Yeah. Because it's the first time. Yeah. And, I, and it's interesting because um, – I don't think of the first section as being unrealistic. Actually, I think of it as being very realistic emotionally. Sure. And I think that um I don't know if we talked about this at the time, but one of the things that I always think about now when having this conversation with people about this um like hyper aware super saturated sense of like teen emotion mm-hmm. around around love and heartbreak and um, is, you know, every once in a while I read something by another author that is both so over the top and so emotionally real. And the fact that it's writing that can do both those things that can mm-hmm. seem so emotionally yes. authentic and so completely excessive at the same time, I always take notice of it. And, you know, two of the things that I think of most often are Harold Brodke's story, First Love and Other Sorrows, which I actually mm. teach in part because I want to teach this idea that sometimes prose that feels very over the top is the most accurate and realistic prose to capture right. a certain emotional right. state. Um, and then there's this wonderful scene in Francisco Goldman's um, novel, The Ordinary Seaman, which is uh, my favorite, possibly my favorite sex scene in all of literature. And it's one of these sex scenes that you both just like, you're laughing and crying while you read it because you just can't believe the way the scene is unfolding. And also it just feels like the most real and honest sex scene ever, yeah. ever committed to paper. And so I think that contradiction is something that I was trying to trying to find in this book also. That yes. you know, oh, this is too much. Oh, this is finally just enough to like actually depict how it feels. Yeah. So your characters are students at a performing arts high school in the 80s. And they are just maybe less worldly than than kids today, perhaps. Yeah, I would say much less worldly. I think that um, it was a different time in so many ways, apart from the obvious way in which it was a different time. Um, <laughs> it was a different time. I mean, my memories of that time, which I drew on heavily – because that was, you know, that was the period of time during which I was a teenager. And you went to um, a performing arts yeah, high school. Yeah, I went to a performing arts high school, you know, not not Kappa, um, not that experience, but enough of a taste of that experience to be able to follow certain speculative roads. Um, 
to, to certain conclusions. But I think what I'm struck by most when I think back on my experience as a teen compared to say, you know, that of my own children is that I was, you know, I was very, very untraveled, literally. I had visited very, very few places apart from the place in which I lived. And I was relatively sophisticated compared to my peers. I had actually left the country before I was 14 years old because my father had had a sabbatical overseas. That was an unusual experience to have under my belt with regard to my peers. And we were, um, we were really privileged young people. You know, we lived in middle-class households. Mm -hmm. Uh, we had the school supplies that we needed. We got fed breakfast every morning, but we just didn't know that much of the world. We hadn't actually physically been to that many places and there was no internet. Right. (laughs) So we couldn't travel in that way either. And there were just a lot of things we didn't know that I, I feel like these days, you know, even my 12 year old knows all this stuff that I'm like, the number of times, if I had a penny for every time I said to him, how did you know that? I would be rich already. He just, and he's always like, the internet mommy. Yes. And and I love how, you know, you said back in the 80s, even if um, a performing arts student might say that they detest Andrew Lloyd Webber, that the cat sweatshirt was was a totem of oh yeah the cat sweatshirt i mean you know i say we weren't very well traveled but like that that what do you what do you call it that like ritual that coming of age ritual of going to new york city and seeing cats <laughs> on broadway was one that a certain number of our very very lucky peers had experienced and they wore that t-shirt to tell all of the rest of us that they had seen cats. And even if we were kids who were, who some instinct led us to scorn cats, we weren't yet sure why we scorned it. (laughs) I I didn't really yet know why it it would be possible to scorn it. I mean, I think because it was such a juggernaut of popular success, like, you know, there's a certain teen who gravitates toward the, um, the countercultural impulse, even if you haven't yet like collected your countercultural preferences. Uh-huh. You're still like, no, that's not cool. Secretly, we were all so jealous <laughs> of the people who had actually gotten their cat sweatshirt in New York. And now very soon your sons will be able to just watch the movie. <laughs> they won't have the least interest no, in it. Yeah. I don't think they have any idea what it is. And and you know, it's gonna be hard to explain to them why grown-ups wearing cat costumes and cat makeup. <laughs> ever seemed like a, a prestige form of entertainment. Indeed. I mean, I love it. Um, and then even in terms of, I feel like we're at a different space in 2019 in terms of sexuality and talking about sexual preference and gender in a way that the kids in your in the book, in the first part anyway, um, are really unexperienced with. Yeah. And they're really, really, really not experienced with that and yet so much more experienced yes. probably than their same age peers who don't go to performing arts high school and don't have sure. an openly gay teacher who has you know, a same-sex life partner and don't have the handsome senior coming out to them at a party. Um, 
was that stuff happening at other high schools in 1983? Not so much. And I remember thinking, because it was in high school that I became aware in a really um, memorable way of gay life, gay America. I had a cousin um, who was a gay man. He is not with us anymore. He died of AIDS. Mm. He lived in San Francisco. He was my idol because, you know, that countercultural impulse existed in me. And I would look around thinking like, what's cool? Oh, he is. Mm -hmm. He was cool. Um, I think that, you know, we, we thought of ourselves as, as being much more knowing than other kids our age who didn't right. necessarily have a single gay friend or didn't necessarily have a single gay adult in their life. And, you know, if there's one thing that's improved in the world, yeah. I actually often think, like I often think has anything improved in the world um, in the past collection of decades, you know, as like our environment is degraded and yes. our political system goes in the strange direction it's going right now, which we won't talk about. Uh-uh. The one thing that I keep coming back to is um, – the amazing transformations socially around orientation and gender that are now totally second nature to my kids yeah, who really don't understand why it would have ever been a big deal. Like, and of they course, just they still they, they live in Brooklyn. They do. But even throughout the rest of the world, it seems, or the country. Yeah. I mean, the country is in, of course, as many different places on this as I think there are different places in the country. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, I mean, in 1983, I think uh, e- even in, even in our more, um, you know, progressive enclaves, we were nowhere near where we are now. Where uh, it's it's incomprehensible. Yes, my kids live in Brooklyn, a very progressive place, but I, it's just they don't get it. Like, right? Why would somebody? What? Like, it's just so weird. Why to would them. it matter? Why would it matter? Yeah. Like, why would anyone care? They don't understand that. They don't have any trouble at all with pronouns, I have to say. They don't really even understand why it's hard for us adults to like get in that habit. Yeah. You know, they're like, what? <laughs> what's the matter with you? They prefer they, mommy. Like, why can't you remember that? They have no trouble remembering it. And yeah, we were, I remember being in school and being taught that saying they for one person was like one of the cardinal sins of grammar yeah i mean that 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 is why so much more than than you know um i think the difficulty for people of our generation is purely one of grammatical habit where we had it hammered into us on pain of death not to not to ever say that so i know older people who are really still unable to just embrace that pronoun usage I find it subversively thrilling because I'm like, yes. Yes, break the rules. We get to break that rule because now it's the new rule. It's the new rule. <laughs> <laughs> rules change. Sometimes rules. for the better, sometimes. Indeed. And also in terms of what's going on today, the Me Too movement has um, brought a lot of uh, mistreatment of women to light. Yeah, yeah, a lot of mistreatment of people to like mistreatment to of people. Say, yeah, yeah, yes. Did that influence your writing in any way? I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, it did, and it didn't. And the way in which it didn't um, is simple to explain. A lot of the book, most of it, existed already before the fall of twenty seventeen. In the fall of twenty seventeen, the book was done. It was in full draft. It was 
you know, my agent had read it. We were talking about revisions. Right. I was not totally happy with the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in one sense, Me Too didn't influence the writing of the book because so much of it already existed. Right. But it did influence it enormously in that when that conversation started happening, um, which, you know, as we all know, is a conversation that had been happening. Of course. For years and decades and lifetimes, except in a really different way because it was always a private or intimate or um, – or, you know, uh, painfully uh, limited conversation that you would have with the people you trusted most. Right. Um, it was not a national conversation happening on front pages where suddenly you got to look around and go, oh, my God, everyone has been having this conversation in private all For these years. And now we're suddenly yeah. we've pulled the lid off of it and it's a conversation everyone's having in public. And when I say everyone, I mean a lot of people. But, of course, there were a lot of people who had, had not been having this conversation. Mm-hmm who needed to be hearing it. And so that was the extraordinary thing that I think um, led to the book being altered in a couple of significant ways that were the ways in which it needed to be altered. The book had a the book had an ending that felt arbitrary to me. I had mm-hmm. never been quite sure where that book was supposed to end. Um, and I think that's one of the joys and challenges of the unconventional structure yes. is that you're like, well, because the structure is so unconventional, I too am really not clear on, <laughs> you know, what is going to, um, what is going to both end it and reach back through the entire book to the very opening moments and confer meaning on them in a new way. And me too was the thing that suddenly returned me to the manuscript knowing how to do that. Um, really quite suddenly. And I think it was more like a light fell on what already existed in the book. And I understood that there were all of these threads already running through the book. And there was a way in which I could take them all up. Yeah. Um, fairly deftly and quickly um, in an ending that I never wanted to be long. I never wanted the final section of that book to be anywhere near the length of the other sections. I'd always right. wanted it to be much shorter. My agent was calling it a coda, I think, to, sure. to stop me freaking out because I was like, I can't get the ending right. And she was like, it's just a coda. And the word coda. <laughs> Did that calm you? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, the word coda is so calming and sexy in a way mm-hmm. because I was like, codas come after. and So you, you know, finished the thing. Yeah, it means that like the work has been done. It's just a way in which we shed a light on that work. Yes. And so that 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 got figured out. I love it. <laughs> Give me one book me- recommendation, please, Susan. Oh my god, one book recommendation? Yes. Um, I I can it's not going to be one book, it's going to be one writer. I Excellent. love the writer Renee Gladman and oh. her work is so uncategorizable and creates a world an actual world because her work takes place in a world that doesn't exist and yet that does this thing that we were just talking about. It shines a light somehow on our reality that makes it oh glow in a different way. So Renee Gladman is who I would recommend any of her work. And um, her books are deliciously small and yet capacious. I love them. I love it. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank this you was so fun. Yeah. And such an adventure here. What an adventure. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.